You're listening to the Party in My Plants podcast, and you're about to hear how you can get crack-a-lackin' on a daily mindfulness practice and how you can apply said daily mindfulness practice to your daily plant partying. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. This episode is sponsored by my BFFs Amazing Grass, who just became even more amazing by launching some new, awesome, I mean, amazing stuff. Elixirs. Elixirs is kind of a hot word being thrown around the healthy product marketing town. So if you're wondering, the true definition of an elixir is a magical or medicinal potion. So Amazing Grass is three new organic medicinal potions, which come in packets or tubs as per their usual, are crafted to support your beauty, your brain, and your belly. No, not all at once. I'm a personally humongo fan of their brain potion, I mean elixir, which has my beloved matcha in it, plus my also beloved maca among a bunch of other carefully chosen ingredients which work together to keep your focus in check. Ah, but I'm also a humongo fan of their belly elixir, which I've been especially going to town on since it has probiotics in it and I've weirdly misplaced my probiotics in my home. To take Amazing Grass to the next level of amazingness, they're offering Party in My Plants podcast listeners 40% off. Yes, 40%, not some measly 10%, 40% off your Amazing Grass orders if you go to their website, amazinggrass.com, and use coupon code PLANTPARTY40 at checkout. That's PLANTPARTY40 at checkout on amazinggrass.com. And all that info is also linked in the show notes at partyinmyplants.com slash 68. My guest today is an award-winning health educator, a professor, a speaker, a best-selling author, and an overall lovely lady who's extremely passionate about mindful plant-based eating. Lanny Mulrath discovered through personal experience and training that mindfulness practices are a proven method of getting beneath the surface of eating obstacles after she had already discovered that eating plants is the way to go for show. She's written many books about plant-based eating and living, but her latest one, The Mindful Vegan, is all about how your struggles around food, like excessive snacking, compulsive or emotional eating, battling with cravings, overeating, or other struggle stuff, can be alleviated by implementing a mindfulness practice. So, needless to say, be prepared for your mind to be blown, or at least full, by the end of this chat. Lanny, thank you so much for coming on the Party My Plants podcast. Well, thank you, Talia. I'm just so excited to be here. Mindful eating. Okay, man, oh man, (laughs) is that a tricky topic. I would love for you to just tell me right off the bat what mindful eating is. Well, how about if I start with what mindfulness is and then we layer that in with the eating part? Does that work for you? That works great. Okay. Okay. And it's a good kind of levels the playing field for how I approach the whole mindfulness practice with formal practice, with living your life and with eating. So mindfulness is a specific form of mental training and 
It's a particular kind of awareness that you bring to your daily activities. Now, together, these two lead to reductions in reactivity, how much of our day is just spent reacting to this and that, right? And also to the cultivation of positive brain states. So if you take that whole idea and layer it into the eating realm, you can see how reductions in reactivity and cultivating positive brain states might be useful and skillful to have within the eating realm, correct? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Considering that's an activity that we do many, many, many times every single day. Many times a day. And uh, it also, another insight into this is, I don't know, I'm sure tell you that you have seen books about mindful eating and they've been out there for a long time, but it drove me nuts that not a one of them really considered how, where, and what was on our plates, who is on our plates, what's the impact of on our plates to our health, to the environment, to the species that we share planet Earth with. I mean, this is fundamental to eating mindfully, don't you think? Like- so, so you're saying other books out there, other programs talk about mindful eating, but they don't talk about what you're actually eating mindfully. They're just not, talking about exactly. eating mindfully, it's more but not like what you're eating. Eats. Yeah. Huh. And some of them reach into it, but none of them have the vegan message. None of them there are mindful plant-based eating. It's simply more about, well, let's make sure that we're appreciating what we eat. But to me, appreciating means, you know, how or who or what it is. So mm. I was very motivated to get something out there that could be helpful to vegans and people following plant-based nutrition who didn't have to navigate through the layers of mindfulness means no matter what you put on your plate. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is that many people suffer from, and maybe somebody listening has, can identify with this, uh, mindless snacking, cravings, what they call emotional eating. Maybe they even think they're a food addict. All of those things are an avenue by which many people deal with the disquieting states that all of us have in one realm or another. So any kind of anxiety, um, unease, discomfort, some people will play this out in the eating realm, which was my refuge. That's where I dealt with all of it. So this is very personal to me. Okay. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, for 30 years, I went uh, up and down in my weight, coming and going from dieting. And it actually came down to the fact that I found out I had this very unhappy relationship with food, eating in my body. And at one point after decades of this, it became more important to rid myself of that or find a new way to live than having that kind of a relationship with food eating in my body. And that was even more important than weight loss to me because mm-hmm. that discomfort is its a horrible way to live. And I couldn't figure out why here I was happily married, gainfully employed with a mm-hmm. promising career, and I was still driving around eating chocolate bars. Yeah. So you know, I had to get to the bottom of that. And actually, mindfulness meditation practice, which I came across 25 years ago is when I started my practice. Mm-hmm. And that got that monkey off my back because it taught me new things about hunger and fullness. It taught me new things about navigating these disquieting states and just life, life as we know it, (laughs) you know, we need, and some people deal with these discomforts by being maybe over committed at work, obsessed with an exercise program. I think we all have our ways of managing. (laughs) Oh yeah. Internet, zoning out online. (laughs) 
Yes. Yeah. You hear all these people doing a binge. Well, that's kind of a form of escape. And mm. um, not that it's not fine to take a break, but when these things keep us from live, living happily and skillfully, then I think it's problematic. So that's the other side of mindful eating to me is the mindfulness practice leads to living more mindfully, which transfers into the eating realm. Boy, oh boy. Okay. So when you started your <laughs> mindfulness meditation practice 25 years ago, that was, so let's say mindfulness and this mindfulness meditation practice is like up top. It's the umbrella. And then under it, you're saying mindful eating is one like component of it. You know, that I, I think that's a good way to put it. And in my mind, even a, another way to put it like is an upside down umbrella, because <laughs> if you have the foundation of the practice of learning to navigate. Well, as I say in The Mindful Vegan, I open with this quote, which I just I just love to repeat because it is so fundamental, instrumental, and it's um, from Viktor Frankl. And he said that between stimulus and response is a space. Mm. And in that space lies a choice. And in that choice is freedom. So we all know where that mm -hmm. space is, right? Between something that is a stimulus and a reaction that we have. And sometimes it's impossible to find because we're so quick to just do what we've always yes. done. But this mindfulness practice taking some time to formally get some degree of mastery over our habits of thinking, it starts to expand that space between stimulus and reactivity. So you get the tools of navigating and making better choices and your life improves because of it. It yes. doesn't give you a trouble-free life. Okay. It gives you a new way to navigate life's ups and downs. So you're just not going through the motions. You're actually consciously you. making decisions <laughs> when you make decisions. Yeah, thank you. And yet it's it's not like an overthinking, like Ooh, it's yeah. not psychoanalysis and trying to compare all this and that. It's more oh. like you become more acquainted with how your body is feeling, how you are reacting to things and how you can open up that space and feel your way to a more compassionate, kind, heartfelt, all these compassion and kindness and peace and equanimity, these are all endogenous to us. And as I said in my definition to mindfulness, I said cultivation of positive brain states. Mm -hmm. All those states are endogenous to us. We just have heaped so much on top of it with years of reactivity, all our busyness in our lives, all our multitasking. It's just gotten buried. So yes. through these practices, we can kind of divest ourselves of all this confusion and live better. Wow. So talk to me about these practices. You know, you say through these practices, what is, you know, a mindfulness practice? Yeah. Thank you. Well, as I said, there's two. There's a specific form of mental training and a particular kind of attention you bring to your day. So let's start with a specific form of mental training, which is simply sitting quietly, being willing and curious about being still, Ugh. becoming aware <laughs> of, I know everyone goes like, oh, I do that and I just can't do it because I can't. my mind goes crazy. <laughs> well, guess what? You know how that feeling is you sit down and you feel like your mind's going crazy? In truth, Talia, it's doing that all the time. Right. We're just not aware of it because <laughs> so we're either true. following it, we're listening to its stories. We're tuning we're it out. Yeah, or, ignore, or ignoring it or pushing it away. But as I, I give the research in The Mindful Vegan, half of our mind activity every day 
at least is spent in wandering mind. That means rehashing the past, projecting or catastrophizing about the future and not being present, which is one way we heap over that being present with calm and equanimity. Mm. So the formal practice means I'm going to designate specific time. And day one, I say, do it for one minute. Okay, that's doable. (laughs) Day two, two minutes. That's what I figured. And let's see what it's like to simply hold. Do you do yoga? I'm sure you've done yoga before, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know how it's like when you're doing a yoga pose and you're like, I don't want to do this. I want to move. I don't want to do this. God, warrior one is that. I hate warrior one. My body does not (laughs) work in that position at all. And every time I'm there, I'm like, I got to get out of this. I got to get out of this. (laughs) But what do you do when you're in class? I mean, I have to stay in it. Otherwise, okay. So you learn, you train yourself (laughs) to hold steady. Yes. You train yourself to hold steady through this discomfort, through the wild imaginings of your mind, the resistance you're feeling. And that's what you do with mindfulness practice. You learn to hold steady with your attention. And this has can you imagine the transfer effect to that in daily life? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you a, a way to hold steady. And yet by the specific tools, as I teach them in the book and through I learned, it's not that you ignore, suppress them, push them away, pretend they're not there or go with them. You learn to kind of create that space around them and go, oh, okay, here's anxiety. Here's mm. discomfort. Here's impatience. Okay. And then what? And as it turns out, Every few seconds, our moods change. We just take them so seriously. We think we have to react to them right away. Right. That's interesting you say, you know, how we take it into our daily life because I think about it all the time when I'm on the subway and I'm crushed in between people and (laughs) I'm like so uncomfortable. I'm Mm. anxious. I'm miserable. I want to get off. I'm scared it's going to stop randomly. You know, it's just the worst. And I'm like, I always bring myself back to yoga. I'm like, if I can stay in yoga, which is so uncomfortable and so awkward and, you know, just not the most comfortable situation, I can stand on this train. I can do it. Just breathe through it. And I honestly make that mental connection all the time. Yeah. So that's brilliant. So you're doing a direct application of a formal practice. And another layer that the mindfulness practice, as I teach it in the Mindful Vegan, brings is that to that experience, which is brilliant, I'm so glad you gave that example, you can also take the layers of learning to navigate what does that anxiety feel like in your body instead of It's an addition to, oh, I'm hanging on. I know I'm anxious. When you can learn to connect with those sensations in your body, it has an amazing way of bringing more ease to the experience. We're so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable that we don't even know there's a new way to be in that space. Mm, that's interesting. Wait, let's just, so you're, we're so comfortable with being uncomfortable. We (laughs) basically, you know, a lot of us just go through life just routinely uncomfortable, you know, whether you're unhappy in your job or in your home or, you know, with your schedule or whatever. And you're saying like, we don't even give ourselves the opportunity to fix that. Or to be present with it because Mm -hmm. we're so busy trying to find a way to get out of it, which we spoke about earlier, you know, some kind of escape to get rid of the discomfort, trying to talk ourselves out of it. Like I shouldn't feel this way, which is a way of shaming and blaming ourselves. And When you go about it that way, you're practicing blame and shame. And what you practice grows stronger. I think everyone has the idea that mindfulness practice is about being present. Would you say that's Mm -hmm. true? Yes. You know, being in the present moment. Well, then the question comes up, well, big deal. What's the value of that? 
And I really like to address that question because this assumption that being, it, we all know it just feels good. There's a nice feeling to that. It's like we hear that and it's like drinking water after a long thirst, being mindful, being present. But here's the value. Uh, earlier, just a few seconds ago, I mentioned about how 50% of the time our minds are wandering. And this is actually the result of some research that was done at a Yale University. And they did discover through this, I detail the whole study in the book, so I won't go through all of it, but it's a fascinating study. Thousands of respondents to the research. Wandering mind that means not having any degree of mastery over this, like feeling the anxiety, running with the anxiety, telling the story about being on the subway, getting caught up in the story. This actually hooks neural activity that leads to excessive rumination. You know what that's like? You can't stop thinking about something. Mm -hmm. It just it just grabs and you go, I just can't get that out of my mind, which now here's the key connection leads you into parts of your brain where reside cravings, sadness, addictions, obsession, all these wonderful states that we really like to have in our lives. Mm. So the point is by doing these practices of disallowing wild wandering of our mind all the time, being able to choose between wandering mind state and concentrated states, which switches you right out of wandering mind. It's like a switch off and on, brings you into the present, which then divests you of all of this connection with these sad, diminished states of mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's fascinating. And it all starts with the meditation. Yeah, getting some degree of mastery. And uh, there are many paths to awakening that, you know, you mentioned a yoga practice is, is very centering for you. And I always recommend people, if you've got something or you've had a practice in your life that does this for you, that brings you more into the present moment and allows you to navigate life's ups and downs more skillfully, then for goodness sakes, continue it, pick it up again. And if you're looking for something or would like to try it out, this is what changed my life, allowed, I, I dropped about 40 or 50 pounds over the wow. process. And that wasn't trying to lose weight. Hmm. That was deciding I'm going to give up all of this war with my body and live mindfully in my life. And that was the result. So it's so kind of a back great. door approach. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. you said there's two approaches to, you know, mindfulness or two prongs, I guess. One is the mental training, which is sitting in stillness. Um, and then would you say, I know your program is 30 days. Does that mean you go up by a minute every day? Like is the goal 30 yes, minutes I a day? Do. Yes. And the goal is as much time as you can do a day. Mm -hmm. And I teach it one minute at a time so that you have these barely noticeable increments going on. I also have audio recordings for every single day to offer support. They're on my website for free. It tells you where to get them in the book. I have several of them loaded up to Insight Timer. I have the first week is um, most of them will be uploaded soon. So the idea is to get people going in this practice. And then even five or 10 minutes a day, as you become more skilled can be highly transformative. I, I don't want people to have an expectation, oh no, I have to do this thing an hour a day. No, you do what time you can and it gives you, literally gives you your life back. Mm -hmm. And the second step uh, after the formal practice, I, I, which is where you were going, yeah, is moving daily. to daily or yeah. activity. What happens is by doing this practice on a regular basis, 
this formal practice. Once you get up and move about from your day, whether you're sitting on a chair or a cushion or even lying down in your bed, I tell people, do it there. If that's the only way it's going to fit in, figure that out. <laughs> lie down and do it. Um, you make an in, set an intention of bringing some degree of this mindfulness forward you with your, into your day, which means going back to the research on wandering mind, can we become increasingly aware of bringing ourselves right to the present moment and actually doing what we're doing because this does lead to more positive brain states. Mm. So you're saying scientifically it's been proven that being present in what we're doing in this moment and how we're feeling and like life in this moment helps us just be more positive? Yes, it leads to greater happiness. And there's thousands of research studies wow. now on this. And this is why it's so hundreds of hospitals, uh, I think we're up to thousands now internationally, are using mindfulness training. It's a science. You don't have, it's non-sectarian. You don't have to be any religion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, you don't have to believe anything, but it's being used for reduction, stress management, anxiety, uh, cessation of addictions, such as smoking, binge eating. Um, even stress diseases such as uh, psoriasis, it's been used successfully to help people diminish those symptoms. And it's all because of giving ourselves this little bit of mastery over wandering mind and present mind. And you can see it in the brain activity. Wow. There are there's some video I show as part of my presentations where you can actually see a subject given an anxiety topic and you see where their brain is going. And then kicking in their mindfulness practice, which is bringing your attention to the breath, and they drop right below that into a quiet, peaceful zone in their brain. Breathing takes place in the present moment. You can't breathe for yesterday. You can't breathe for tomorrow. So you can actually hook into your body to bring you into the present, which is the same as, remember the story on the subway, your beautiful illustration. <laughs> and I suggested that you can also start to learn to, well, what's going on in my body that's telling me I'm feeling this way? That's another way to bring yourself right there right now and pull yourself out of the wild wanderings like what's this person going to do <laughs> to me yeah uh, what's what's going to happen between the next stop you know that's excessive rumination that's where we just get into really exaggerating our anxiety all the what-ifs all the mm. catastrophizing yeah yeah I think we all do a lot of what-ifing in our <laughs> daily lives so tell me how does this all relate to food what is a mindful eating practice mm. actually look like are there specific steps involved very good question because most people, when they think of, okay, here's a book about mindful eating and she's going to tell me to chew each bite 32 times mm -hmm. and sit with quiet music and make sure I have my table set correctly. I, I don't Bless teach those steps. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't do that at all because I think those are layers that we force on from the outside and it kind of sounds like a diet. Yeah. I don't know. The rules. Yeah. yeah. Um, I prefer to approach it organically, which means first, if I'm eating mindfully, not only do I need to be aware of the impact of what's on my plate, on my health, on the planet, on the animals of the planet, but what about being attuned in to my body's hunger and fullness signals? And as a career dieter who had years of somebody else's plans, somebody else's food components, somebody else's calorie count, somebody else's macronutrient management, and I'm sure career dieters listening to the podcast mm -hmm. know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Said, what if this is, and, and all it got me was, yeah, it got me some weight loss, loss but always got me rebound gain. 
Right. And I realized that, well, this is because my body is adapting to a fat loss environment that according to nature, my body doesn't want me to shed a lot of weight fast. It just thinks that it's in a stress environment and that there's got to look out for any kind of food availability so we can pack on the pounds as soon as possible in case there's no more food around. That's yeah. what our bodies think. Our bodies don't know we want to lose a half inch off our thigh. They just know <laughs> we're in a survive. So what happens is instead of going with these exterior trolls, you turn the management of when and how much you eat over to your body and to your mind, you turn over the controls of the quality of what you eat. And this is where whole plant foods fit so beautifully with meeting your natural hunger and fullness signals, which you know, cause you teach all about it. Yeah. When we eat full foods that's full of fiber and full of nutrition, get rid of the stuff that has no fiber, like all animal products and all highly processed foods, then your body has a better chance at becoming full naturally. Mm -hmm. But the other the other component that many, many people miss, and I see it all the time, is honoring our hunger signals. We think that we can soldier on through two hours of hunger and then we'll be fine. And then we wonder why we gain weight. Mm. It's because some of us are very sensitive more than others to any kind of reckless eating. That doesn't mean just the components of your food, but it means timing. If your body's very sensitive to that, and the way you know you're sensitive is if you're a person who easily gains weight, has a hard time losing weight, and you can see your relatives kind of doing the same, having the same problem. Okay. This means you really need to be tuned into your body's signals for eating on time so that it does not need to go out and store more more body fat or be, be reluctant to let go of its stores. So that's the key to what turned out to be my lasting weight loss of about 20 years now. Mm. Because instead of trying to keep forcing the fat off my body and gaining it back, I said, let's send my body, eat mindfully so that I send it the message that I'm mindful and aware of you're hungry now. I have quality food to feed you. I'll eat until I'm not hungry anymore. And then the next time I'm hungry, I'll be prepared with quality food. So it's a shift. It's a shift from our regular diet thinking, and it's a shift from our hectic culture, which wants us to eat according to a schedule and not be hungry at inconvenient totally. times. Yeah. So, I mean, for somebody listening that's like hearing, you know, just tune into your hunger signals and listen to those and you're good. You know, like if someone's like, I don't know how the hell to do that. Exactly. Um, what, what would exactly. you say to that person? Because I assume a lot of people are thinking that right now, myself included, you know, yeah. and, and that also begs the question, how does one distinguish between a craving and a hunger signal? Mm. Oh man. Okay. Do you have two more hours? <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. How do you do that? <laughs> you do have to learn to tune in and listen in. If all you've known is stuffed or starved, it can take a while. Mm -hmm. And you start to learn there are specific things that show you your body is hungry. It could be a drop of energy. It could be a lack of mental focus. It could be that real food looks really good. Mm. But we're so programmed to eat according to plan, yep. watch calories that, and this is where I tell you the mindfulness piece made all the difference in the world because I had encountered this way of eating before. I had read about it and it sounded so attractive, but it terrified me. I was sure if I gave over the controls of eating to my body, I would just be big as a house tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I would never stop. 
But so the mind never says, I would know. You think you're just going to eat until you blow up because <laughs> dieters are, we're either stuffed or starved. After a few days of restrictive eating and we just start eating and eating and it's, it's biologically driven. It's not because we're low willpower. It's not because we have a character flaw. It's biology. You're hungry. I so know. you want to, you know, know, do all that makeup eating. So what I did was I used this mindfulness practice to help me navigate all the fear around simply being kind and compassionate to my body and eating until when I was hungry, until I wasn't each time it occurred. It takes a few weeks of trial and error. Sometimes you eat a little bit too much and then you get to navigate the shame around that and find a whole new way to respond. So there's, <laughs> it just keeps, well, it takes that away. It dissolves it instead of investing in shame or trying to push it away or I shouldn't feel this. You learn to be present with it and then these things dissolve. And the things about cravings is this. When your body is fed well enough on time, 98, 99% of cravings, poof, they're gone because your body no longer has the need to reach out for the high fat, high sugar foods that are so well designed for putting excess stores on your body. Does that make sense? Kind of. I'm missing the point where the cravings just go away. Like mm -hmm. why? Why? Where do they go? Because you're well fed <laughs> enough. Gotcha. I see. Okay. So because you're eating what your body wants you to be eating, actually, for nourishment. Actually, going hungry, which many career dieters do, drives a biochemistry in your body to seek out high fat, high sugar foods. And we call it a craving when it's actually hunger. Yes. When you feed yourself mm -hmm. well enough, to me, it's like it's a miracle to live this way, even all these many years later, to not have after dinner this incessant what's in the pantry, what's in the refrigerator, yes. how can I put sugar in something without calories? Yeah. It just, it's just gone. Yeah. And you're saying that's because you're well fed. Biologically, my body doesn't need to do that anymore. It doesn't mean I don't have interest in desserts okay. and that I don't enjoy desserts sometimes, but I'm not afraid of chocolate anymore. Mm. I don't have to keep all these things out of the house because I'm so afraid of what I'm going to do around them. And it's a wonderful way to live. So for me, I've always thought that like mindfulness or mindful eating was, and this is what I've suggested to my clients for years and years, is that, for example, when I get a craving for ice cream, um, which is probably the one thing I crave more than anything else ever, I always check in with myself. So for me, I've always thought that mindfulness was checking in and saying, hey, you know, Talia, like, do you really need this ice cream? Like, would it just be nice and it's something cozy and like, blah, 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 blah. You just saw someone on Instagram eating ice cream and now you're craving it. <laughs> or like, do you need it? And I pause and I say like, what would it feel like to not have the ice cream? Would you be huh, devastated? Uh -huh. Would you lose sleep? Would you be miserable? And if the answer is no, if I'm like, I'd be fine. Then I'll pass on the ice cream. If the mm -hmm. answer is like, yes, like I really want it. Like I just, it would bring me a lot of joy. Like my body feels ready for it. It can digest it. We're going to do it. Um, I choose it. And so for me, that's always sort of been what mindful eating was to me, checking in with myself. But what I'm hearing from you is, is something very different. Am I right? 
I think you're doing beautifully with that. Oh, thanks. Because what you're doing is, and that was very instructive for people, because what you are recognizing here is an urge for the ice cream, Mm. but you're not being compelled helplessly toward it. There's a difference. When we are compelled helplessly, that's usually reinforces the craving. We really end up not having a choice or we'll gut it out for two or three days and then cave anyway. (laughs) When an, an urge for a sweet or a treat is normal people have that. That's natural and normal. It's when it interferes with your peace and equanimity Mm. and it's day after day and it's like a quart of ice cream and all of that, that it's problematic. And if someone has those kinds of um, urges that they call would call cravings repeatedly day Mm. after day, it comes up, Mm. then that tells me the first thing to do is look at your eating through the rest of the day. Are you taking care of your hunger needs so that some of that can dissolve? It doesn't mean you'll never want ice cream again, but it can make the difference between y'all have a scoop and okay let's where'd that pint go right (laughs) no this is interesting well I always consider that like a loving no you know where I'm not like it's not a if I turn down the if I say no I'm not gonna have it it's never like oh I'm not gonna have it like I you know it's bikini season or whatever it's always like oh you know I don't need it and I consider it like I love myself it's a loving no is the way I look at like look at me like Mm -hmm. I don't need it I win over the ice cream you know that's sort of my mentality of it. But what's interesting Uh is you're saying that, you know, I go through weeks where I won't even have any cravings at all. And I, and Uh I've never really noticed why those weeks are versus weeks that then maybe I will start having the ice cream cravings. But I would venture to guess based on what we're saying that those weeks that I have no cravings at all for the sweets is, are the weeks where I'm very well nourished. That's entirely possible because that's what we see over and over again. And you may not be cognizant of that, yeah. but it, it'd be interesting to look at that. If you're aware of making sure that you, you're you not missing a bunch of food when you're hungry, and some people can do that and not have the, the strong response and overeat and gain, those people have a low famine sensitivity. I told you I have a very high famine sensitivity, which means I'm really tuned in mm-hmm. to low food availability. But if you have that a low sensitivity like that, plus you are have been really diligent and good about making sure you eat solid food and good food on time, then that would have a very strong effect. That's part of the instruction. So that would be uh, interesting to find out for yourself. Yeah, for sure. So explain to me the difference, if you don't mind, between, because in the beginning you mentioned over-analysis. And I feel like there could be some people listening that might be confusing mindfulness with over-analysis. What would you say is the difference between, you know, eating mindfully and overanalyzing what you're eating? You mean like you're sitting at a meal? Yeah, like you're about or you're okay. So you're hungry. It's, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, your energy's crashed and you're feeling like you need something. Now, you know, in that moment, I think some people might say to themselves, okay, you just ate lunch. You don't need to eat. You're leaving work soon. Like you'll just eat when you get home or, you know, like this inner dialogue that's not positive versus no, in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Then what, what is mindfulness look like in that moment, I guess is a better question instead. Yeah. If real foods that looks good, like a bowl of rice and beans or a piece of fruit or um, a handful of nuts and some vegetables sounds really good, then eat. This doesn't take any analysis at all. And then now, and then all you would need to do is if this is happening every afternoon, 
That mm. means be prepared with some food early afternoon. So what if you wait two hours ago? Your body is hungry now. Maybe you have a famine from earlier in the day or all last week. Mm. Maybe you were reckless about eating or you decided I'm going to try that intermittent fasting and every other day. <laughs> and all of a sudden a week later, it's like I, I'm so hungry. I can't stop eating. I had lunch. Well, so what? Your body still has makeup eating to do. So right. it's a way to get it out of your head and yes. into your body. Gotcha. And so it also sounds like one of the ways to sort of know if you're on track, correct me if I'm wrong, is to look at the food that you're yearning to eat in that moment. If it's something crappy, like processed crap, then that's not your body yearning for it. That is a like bullshit craving. You know, if you're yearning for, like you said, rice and beans or like a green smoothie or some whole food, then that's your body yearning for nourishment. And that's something you should listen to. I would qualify that with one thing. If your body is really interested in yearning for what, what, how you described it? <laughs> Crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is something to listen to because it says that you have some makeup eating to do. Even if the food is less than healthy. I didn't say to go ahead and eat it. Oh. I said that that yearning is there for a reason. Your body does everything for a reason. And we think that's the people that think, oh, I'm just addicted to sugar. If I could only never eat sugar anymore, I'd never get this craving. So mm. it doesn't work that way. What The way it works is by making sure that you have plenty of food on time. And then this makes these situations or these events suddenly not happen, you become hungry, but real food comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So I don't, it's not a bullshit. It's actually a very important piece of information. So if at that time you can be prepared with real food and then set an intention that at the next day, the next eating events to have plenty of whole good quality food so that you're eating to satisfaction, stop skipping times when your body is really calling out for fuel, which is driving up these uncontrollable yearnings. So mm. does that sound, make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, you know, spark notes, prepare yourself with real plant food all the time <laughs> for when you're actually yeah. hungry. And yeah, and people become so afraid of eating and it's just backfires on us because it turns out it, for these cravings. That's why, as you know from the Mindful Vegan book, my approach to addictions, like food addictions, is different because as you can see from our conversation, so much of that is dissolved simply by being fed well. You aren't addicted to sugar, you're just hungry. Interesting. That's definitely a pull quote from this episode. <laughs> you're not addicted to sugar, you are just hungry. <laughs> So I guess in that sense, that's how mindful eating can help with weight loss, right? Because you're not going to be yo-yo dieting, you know, yes, when you're mindful yes, eating. Ta-da! Yes, <laughs> because you're mindful of your body's needs for fuel. You're respectful of that. You're mindful of making sure you're prepared with good quality food wherever you are, whether it's home, whether it's traveling, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's on the subway, whether it's anywhere Right. So what is one, you know, first step that somebody listening could do to start a mindfulness practice or, you know, and or a mindful eating practice? If they're How about listening... we do one for each? Let's yeah, do please. one for each. Okay. Well, let's look at day one as in the mindful vegan is simply take one minute of time and sit yourself quietly. It doesn't have to be in a special position. You don't have to wrap your legs around your neck. You can be seated in a chair. You can be seated on a cushion. I have the one minute, um, Day one is already on Insight Timer, and most of it is instruction because a minute goes pretty fast, but I tell you how, you know, the position to sit. Take that and just, or just even without any audio, find a minute and simply sit 
Bring your attention to where the breath comes in and out of your body at your nose. And every time your mind wanders from feeling the sensations of the breath, bring it back. That's all this is. It's bringing your attention back to the point of concentration. I call it the point of anchor. Because remember, the purpose of this is to learn how to bring our attention out from running with everything that occurs to our head to being in the present moment. And the breath will do that. So that's one thing you can do today. And the other thing as with mindful eating is to make sure that wherever you are, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's getting to and from work, that you have a good arsenal of whole plant foods that you can turn to when you're hungry. So you don't have to go hungry anymore and drive up the urge for the whatever in the middle of the afternoon. I love that. I love that. Have plant foods with you (laughs) at all times. (laughs) And just to give people peace of mind, and I guess myself included, would you say it's normal to have like unmindful days or for one's mindfulness, I guess, to fluctuate? Well, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you're not just like Miss Mindful every single day yourself. When you go to yoga class, what do you say? You don't say I'm going to yoga perfect. You say I'm going to yoga practice. Mm. So (laughs) it's actually, it's a practice and it's a constant, uh, navigating our daily lives in a way that how can I bring more mindfulness to this? And when I fall short, when my mind wanders all over the place, which yes, that happens. There can be meditations when 10 minutes later, it's like, oh, huh, where, what was I thinking? What was I doing again? So you simply yeah. <laughs> bring your attention back. And this is also another place to practice kindness and compassion because usually people go, oh, I'll never get this right. My mind wanders too much. Well, then you're practicing blame and shame. So you say, okay, let's just bring it kindly back. And then you learn how to do that through your day so that if you have a day when you have some kind of a food blowout just because it happened, instead of getting buried in shame for a week, you learn to navigate that because you practice the tools of looking at the being present with the sensations in your body that tell you everything about your emotions and about your hunger and fullness and about your mood state. So it's mm. it just grows and grows in that way. So yeah, just because you do this doesn't give you a trouble-free life or <laughs> a perfect, you know, you're, yeah, yeah, you're not the enlightened person Bummer. floating t- 10 feet above the subway. Oh, you simply have better tools. <laughs> Okay, so some final personal plant questions for you, and then I'll let you go. <laughs> personal plant questions. You know. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite plant party restaurant, which is just a plant-based restaurant? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I live in the woods in the middle of nowhere, and there are no restaurants around here. What is your favorite plant to eat? You know, it really depends on my mood. <laughs> plant. So today. we could either – yeah, today I am just – I had cherry pie for breakfast. Oh my god! Nice. <laughs> I'll tell you how I make that. I yeah, cook please. five grains. Yeah, I cook five grain cereal that I, I get in bulk, and I heat it up, and then at the end I throw in some dark sweet cherries from the freezer because cherries aren't in season right now, mm-hmm. obviously. But cherries are one of my very favorite plant foods. I'll throw that in until they, it takes the freeze and frost out of them, and there is your cherry pie for breakfast. It is so good. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> that sounds. Amazing. I'm down with that. And you can make blueberry pie too. It sounds like or peach. Oh, peach, pie. blueberry. Yeah. Raspberry there's something about pie. The cherry pie. Oh, any kind of pie. <laughs> yeah. Mixed berry pie. Yeah. Mm, sounds so good. <laughs> what would you say your most used kitchen tool is? Oh gosh. I would say probably my knife. Nice. 
Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I have not, I'm a very lazy cook. I don't really like to chop. So if I have lots to chop, I'll just get out my food processor yeah, and, um, you know, do that. I couldn't live without my food processor and my knife. Well, okay. So what is some book besides your own that has inspired <laughs> you in some awesome way? Uh, along the plant-based journey? Sure. Uh, well, the plant-based journey is the name of my book prior to this one, oh. <laughs> which I'm sure you're familiar with. Actually, yeah, that was uh, that came out two years ago, also from the same publisher, and that's a step-by-step guide for making the transition. So, what I actually have now is a trilogy because my first book was fitness, my second was about the food, and this is about the frame of mind. So, it's kind of the three pillars. Cool. But other books that I really like, I'm using a lot of the Homemade Pantry, which is Miyoko Shinner's book about oh. quick and easy ways to cook things in your own kitchen that we might be used to from, you know, kitchens before. So that is true. And I also really love Whole by Dr. T. Colin Campbell Mm. because it brings that whole idea of coming out of reductionism into holistic, which is obviously from our last hour conversation, my approach is very holistic. It's not this or that. It's all things combined. And anything by Dr. Neil Barnard. Yeah. Who wrote the (laughs) foreword of your book? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Perfect. Um, okay. And so where can people go to learn more about your work and mindfulness and all that? Uh, well, my website is landymulerath.com or the mindfulveganbook.com. That's an easy way to get there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of what's on your mind with us today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I sure hope this has been a benefit and maybe given some people some new ideas and directions they might want to explore to just increase happiness and well-being. Yes, I think it certainly has. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. So is your mind blown? or is your mind at least full? (laughs) I do think that practicing mindfulness, which doesn't have to be anything other than legitimately just sitting and breathing for a minute and focusing on your breath, which is something I truly do routinely on the subway, it's a game changer. For your stress levels, your peace of mind, your ability to handle life without losing your mind, and clearly it's also a game changer for your healthy eating. All by just sitting your ass down and focusing on breathing. Are you kidding me? It's almost a joke, but the punchline is that it actually works. So don't knock, knock it. (laughs) God, I'm on a roll. P.S. Before you rock and roll right out of here, would you mind sharing my podcast with one person whom you think would dig it? I would really dig you for doing that. Oh, and you can find the show notes for this chat, plus so much more that makes healthy living not suck over at partyinmyplants.com slash 68.